1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ryan Driscoll-Tate, and our guest today is David Vail. He's an assistant professor of history at the University of Nebraska at Kearney, and he's the author of Chemical Lands, a book about pesticides and aerial spraying in the North American grasslands. The book's out now through the University of Alabama. David Vail. Welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you for hosting me.
1: So David, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself uh, and how you became a historian?
0: Sure. Um, I really enjoyed history all the way back into junior high school. Um, And so for me, uh, becoming a historian was one of these lifelong goals that we all sort of have when we're young. And fortunately for me, um, I sort of found my way with it. Uh, I grew up in Oregon, and so every degree sort of brought me eastward. And so um, I ended up getting my PhD at Kansas State University in 2012, spent some time doing public history work and archives work, although I specialize in environmental history and history of science and technology and that sort of thing. And um, ultimately found myself at University of Nebraska at Kearney, where I could really explore um, some of these themes that we'll be talking about in terms of chemical lands. But really, I mean, I, if I think about how I became a historian, it has a lot to do with connections, and most interestingly about, you know, landscapes and environment and technology. And so I, as I think back on this question, actually, it's, it's really curious to see how all those pieces come together in my own professional career, not just in my scholarship.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, why don't we start with how you came to write this book, Chemical Lands? Uh, where did the idea come from?
0: Yeah. Um, so, as a master's student at Utah State, um, I started really thinking about how the relationships between environment, technology, agricultural science, um, agricultural landscapes, but specifically like extension science and that sort of stuff that we see at land grants, outside of land grant, Utah State, um, how that all kind of came together in a place. And uh, so I got accepted into Kansas State's Ph.D. program uh, in 2006 and really wanted to keep exploring those intersections and so as as most listeners probably know um uh you know you have an advisor or you have someone important in your life that sort of says hey i really like these ideas have you ever considered these remote archives in this one box that i know in the local archives um, or special <laughs> collections and um and so that's basically the conversation i had with my advisor at kansas state he had said hey you know there are all of these um archival collections at um the kansas historical society in topeka kansas um that have to do with pesticides um and it strikes me that you know these intersections of environment and agriculture and and science and technology right like those things will all sort of reveal something new uh, but no one's really looked at these um archives to check so i was on my way and um so Really, the genesis of Chemical Land started as a dissertation project, and and part of it is the more I got into it, as most of these projects sort of go, the more you realize, like, you know, wow, uh, no one's really looked at these interactions here, and then that's how I kind of got onto um, agricultural aviation, the history of aerial spraying, which is, uh, you see, if you drive around the Great Plains, you'll see ag planes in the sky. And and you sort of so I started making those connections, and so that's really the genesis of the project.
1: So, could you situate the book for us? Uh, We're in the grasslands, but what regions and states are we talking about here?
0: Yeah, well, this is a controversial question. uh, Strangely, for people who live out here, (laughs) Um, whether or not it's the Great Plains or the Midwest or the grasslands, I sort of employ all of those concepts to an extent um and the work just because i have sort of a line in there on the note on region where it talks about how you know the practitioners that i'm looking at and and the noxious weeds right they didn't have these designations um and so uh but yeah i would say you know nebraska kansas oklahoma texas uh the dakotas uh, you can connect to parts of Colorado and the High Plains, Montana. Also, Iowa gets um, uh, some uh, focus in there, and some. So traditionally, like the Census Bureau would consider technically Iowa to be part of the Midwest and and not the Great Plains. But really, what I'm trying to, I guess, talk about in terms of region, which I think is really important to understand in the histories that we write. Uh, is I would call this the Great Plains West. That's another way of kind of organizing the region. But for me, part of the book is is how important is region in this story, right? Like what's going on here and, and does region matter? And of course, I argue uh, that it does.
1: Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to touch on the fact that you, you opened the book with Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, uh, which was published in 1962, And her commentary on pesticides and agricultural chemicals. Um, So for our listeners who might not be familiar, first of all, what did Carson have to say? Uh, And second, I mean, how does it relate to the book?
0: Yeah Rachel Carson is one of the stalwarts um, in the political debates around the application of pesticides and really the, the larger uh, scope of um, the, of ecological science and ultimately she becomes an important um, figure in sparking the uh, environmental movement uh, of you know Earth Day 1970 and that sort of thing. So Carson's a really important figure um, in this story. Um, and Carson, uh, right. She wrote versions of silent spring, um, and the new Yorker before the book came out. And, um, essentially what it's arguing is that, um, Americans need to rethink how, uh, pesticides and agricultural chemicals writ large, but specifically the insecticide DDT. Um, she brings in herbicides in there and that sort of thing as well. Um, and she. A, she writes it in a way that's very accessible to the general public. The science of uh, the growing science of toxicology, for example, and the role toxicity plays in landscapes and and plants and animals and the concerns um, therein. You know, she was able to harness a language uh, to reveal it in a way that a general public could really understand and latch on to it. And and so that's the power of like the the fable that she sort of constructs and the opening pages of Silent Spring. So that's part of the power of the work um, and the criticism that she employs in the work. Um, She's really advocating um, for a larger uh, reevaluation of humans and non-humans, right? The, the relationship, and it's in a larger ecological whole. And so she, um, the interconnections between what's applied on the land and how that filters out to the streams and to the animal populations and to communities. Um, her book uh, talks a lot about um, how we have to, as humans um, and as Americans, sort of rethink how this uh, goes. Now, there's one thing that is always overlooked, and um, I always like to bring it up. I bring it up in the book as well, which is that although she's, she's criticizing how chemicals have been used and the dangers uh, sort of that she feels have been overlooked and the science proves it out um, that she employs in the book, um, she's... She does say um, that uh she's resisting saying that all of this needs to be made illegal or something, right? That we have to basically manage and rethink how this goes. Now um, that gets overlooked in the growth of the political um polarization of the period where you get you sort of get into uh two main camps. You're either in the apply chemicals camp, like the agribusiness camp. Uh, or you're in the growing environmentalist camp. Um, And so interestingly, um, this is another uh, route to which I inspire me to write Chemical Lands because I started wondering, Okay. If you're, if flying 30,000 feet, uh, so to speak, looking down at this political exchange, okay, we have these like designated camps. We have the policy debates. We have the political debates. Yes. All of that uh, is pretty clearly defined, but it strikes me. And I wonder how clearly defined it is on the field level, right on the ground. Um, and, and within a region. And so, uh, you know, she was very uh, critical in Silent Spring about um, agricultural aviation, and she used a lot of the southern examples, um, the southern region as sort of, a, and they were good examples of the problematic nature of spraying um, insecticides and herbicides on landscapes without really understanding um, at least her argument, not really understanding the um, exchanges and, and the relationships that come, uh, the diverse, sort of the, the problematic ones that come uh, when you Spray highly toxic things from the air to the ground.
1: Yeah, you know. So the background to this is what you call uh, the emergence of a post-war chemical landscape or a chemical agricultural landscape. Uh, what do you mean by that, and, and how did it come to be?
0: Yeah. Um, so, so what I wanted to try to understand. Uh, more holistically within the region right um so we have all of these actors on the ground trying to produce um for a growing um A a growing group of people, a growing emphasis within production landscapes um, to produce as much as possible. Um, And so in order to do that, you had to you you couldn't just rely on manual labor anymore to to remove weeds or to fight insect infestations. And so. you know, DDT as the insecticide or the popular one after World War II, 24D, uh, the herbicide, like both of those become very, very popular, um, almost at least they're marketed by chemical companies, almost as a silver bullet uh, uh, to a uh, Tempt all this and and you know the chemical companies uh, have um, the World War II to sort of rely on right and the, and insecticides and herbicides were used very very effectively um, in World War II uh, and especially in terms of disease but okay so all of that is sort of well known at the national level and what I wanted to do is see how pesticides insecticides and herbicides how they shifted things how they changed things within a region so I I picked the grasslands to do that so part of what the book is trying to get at is this idea that, you know, pesticides change things and they created new technologies, which the ag plane is one of them. They they uh, remade um, ideas about farming and ideas about possibilities of production um, and also attitudes about health and, and brought new dangers to that. Um, so I tried to get at this um that's part of the chemical landscape, right? So the, the environmental part, the, uh, community based part, the cultural attitudes, part of what it comes into uh, what a landscape is. Um, and then Part of it is who are the practitioners in all of this? So like the the scientific exp- experts versus the people actually using the stuff on the ground, or in this case, the sky. Um, I was curious about how that fits into this larger chemical landscape. So th- those are some of the components about um, how, how that all looks in terms of a grasslands Landscape, as it when it comes to sort of like how is the chemicals converting this place into an image of themselves?
1: Yeah, I mean, to get a sense of the change, um, you know, pests aren't new. Um, how had farmers, you know, tried to deal with this kind of problem before? What were their solutions before the emergence of this chemical agricultural landscape?
0: Well, and, and this is a really good point because, uh, a lot of people living in the Great Plains had uh, a recent memories of drought and and infestation of, of grasshoppers you know the drought of the 1930s um, the issues around uh, grasshopper infestations and pest infestations Um, are fairly recent. And then a few generations before, you know, so like two generations before that generation, they would still have uh, historical memory access and and through family experience and other things um, to remember like early 1900s problems with pests and how they dealt with that was largely through manual labor. And, And so... Part of that is that, you know, in the early chapters of Chemical Lands, I try to scope how that is and then how that changes after World War II. Um, they they devised interesting technologies to address um, pre-1945 um, issues around pest infestations like the Hoppadozer, for example, which was this basically uh, uh, an innovation of, of a plow that um, allowed uh, farmers to sort of lace it with um, sticky insecticide and plow their fields and also try to catch uh, grasshoppers at the same time, which they would die once they they, they attach to the poison. Um, so there are obviously attempts, but that's still sort of manual labor with the advent of um, you know, agricultural chemical explosion after World War II, you have not just um, more potent alternatives, but you have a whole technological infrastructure that's being built to um, deploy that, that more potent version after World War II.
1: Right. So the heart of the book is about aerosprain. So I want to get to that. Um, what's your argument here? How did aerosprain develop and, and how did it change things?
0: Yeah. Uh, so Part, part of um, my focus on aerial spraying is that there historically there's been a deficit um, of focus on that specific industry, that agricultural industry, which sort of crosses the boundaries of many different historical approaches, right? There, it crosses the boundaries of historical, like history of technology, it crosses the boundaries of history of science um, and agricultural history. So I thought in some certain respects, Looking at not just the industry, but the ag plane itself and the evolution of that um, connects to all these different historical lenses that then uh, reveal new um, relationships within the region. Not So it's not just an industry history of it. But, um, yeah, so I was curious about those sorts of pieces, how all of those um, uh, pieces, the history of science, uh, the history of health, the history of technology. Um, and agriculture all fit into this one thing, the ag plane. So that's part of it, part of, uh, so exploring that. Part of it also becomes, um, it's a manifestation of, of the field view approach to them taking in the larger book. And it goes to the argument of how these local and regional practitioners um, uh, sort of carved out their own expertise and their own notions of agricultural health to try to understand the relationships um, that sort of are working out in the field prior to the uh, politics and the the legal um, infrastructure that ultimately comes into place. So like, for example, I tried to profile pilots like Don Pratt in Western Kansas, and he had all of these contracts for Western Kansas wheat, um, but he established a... Basically, and this is in his ag uh, plane hangar, he established his own lavatory to train his own ag pilots. So if you wanted to go work for him, you had to train a week um, with him in terms of aviation, the aviation side, right? Because if you're going to fly, you have to kind of know how to fly. Um, but, but then also you had to train a week at basically learning the chemistry of the insecticides and the herbicides that would be uh, deployed he had his own test plots to show pilots how weeds grew at different stages and oftentimes this is in conjunction and alongside agricultural experiment station personnel and cooperative extension efforts through the local land grant, which that would be Kansas State. But throughout the, the Great Plains, you see that kind of um, highly localized efforts to try to understand all of this um, in a way that is very localized, uh, very innovative. And so the ag plane becomes a, a manifestation that sort of represents that part, too.
1: So it's a nexus of really the technology and the environment coming together uh, within the plane itself. Is that what you're saying?
0: Yeah. I, I, yes. My answer is yes to all of that. It's <laughs> absolutely. It's absolutely a nexus. Um, and in fact, as as I tr- I try to go along in the book and, and sort of show how the internal environment of the ag plane um, matters too, and how pilots are are uh, sort of adapting their. Uh, early planes um, to sort of compensate for the problems uh, and try to standardize as, as, a, as a catch term that they they come up with this is the best way to try to understand what they're doing. Um, and then also their con- contribution later, the Great Plains pilots contribution later to a much n- larger Uh, national standardization of aerial spraying and pesticide application, first sort of overseen in the 1950s by the USDA, and then ultimately the Environmental Protection Agency uh, takes that over after it's established. And and so what you see is, and I was excited to find this and, and interested to find this, you actually see a lot of the ag pilots of the Great Plains participating and shaping national policy or at least suggestions through these, en- these government entities about sort of standardizing the process across the country. And you really do. You really also see this with the um, desire to standardize the ag plan itself, not just the policies around how to deploy it in the air. What do what you have to consider in terms of environmental conditions, in terms of region, in terms of laws that are maybe existing at the state level um, at that point? Uh, and so there's that part too. Um, you have this ag engineer named um, – aviation engineer named Frederick Weick, uh, Fred Weick, who was uh, in uh, Texas at College Station. And he and he was uh, part of – like he ran around with Amelia Earhart and Charles Lindbergh. So he's sort of the, the ag engi- – the a- aerial engineer engineer. Uh, person in that group and he basically was charged to set up um, a collaborative federal uh, project that would ultimately see uh, what he called the ag one and then he came up with an ag two but these are federally funded that are also supported by the great Plains states um, a, a national prototype for the agricultural spray plane which is a fixed wing plane. um, And that would ultimately become sort of the standard bearer through which um, private companies would follow.
1: So there's a lot of political debate going on, right, at the national and local levels about spraying. Uh, Carson, in her book, had talked about, quote, the sinister touch of poison, unquote. Um, So what are the problems or concerns? What are the constituencies? And what's the politics looking like that's developing at this time?
0: Yeah, so... By the 1970s, you have pretty established constituencies. Of course, they're evolving and growing, but but I would say really you have a, a constituency. Agribusiness and and to an extent, chemical companies are highly influential in in, in these cohorts on that sort of that side, as it were. Um, and they're arguing for um, uh, an application of agricultural chemicals that uh, a Offer economic what they would term uh, in more or less economic security. So um, you know, using uh, pesticides is great because it, uh, it keeps your crops healthy and secure. And this is some of the language that ag pilots would use, but they redefined it to fit um, their own needs. And and that's an important sort of sub theme throughout the throughout the book, I think. But um, so you have sort of that group. Um, at the national level. So advocates for agribusiness saying pesticides are as safe as they can be. Here's how we're using them. Here's how we're self regulating in within the industry. And this is why we're, tr- we're trying to, they're sort of picking up the green revolution language of feeding the world. Um, so that's, that's cohort, you have a growing group on the other side, the environmentalist side, uh, that are arguing, uh, sort of building off of what Carson establishes um, in Silas Spring in 1962, and really building off of that and saying that this is uh, dramatically dangerous in a variety of ways, and science backs this up, um, and we have to rethink and restrict or even stop using it. And this is where you see that uh, shifting into uh, making DDT uh, illegal uh, by 1972. Now, um, okay, so that that's sort of like the national story. Um, and the the constituencies that have really sort of been the loudest in terms of the politics. And chemical companies are very alive and well in, on the agribusiness pro-pesticide debate, if you want to call it that. Um, but then, you know, at the ground level and the regional level, it's much more complicated. And so what you begin to see, which is which was a a, a tremendous revelation to me looking through all of this and being familiar with the larger story is that um, chemical companies would be publishing in their trade journals about, you know, Uh, selling strategies in terms of how to market things to different people and and different groups, and different industries. And they're kept uh, reappearing in a lot of trade journals like the Journal of Agricultural Chemicals. Um, That was a trade journal that ran during these eras, the late 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, But one thing kept coming up again and again and again, and that was uh, they were very surprised uh, that in the Great Plains... Farmers and sometimes even ag pilots, the practitioners, they were reluctant or even refused to buy uh, DDT, a version, their version of DDT or insecticides, um, herbicides, basically agricultural chemicals, and they were very struck by this. And so they they said, you know, how do we how do we change? how, How do we convince them? How do we we have to change our message? to uh, fit the region because we didn't realize that there would be uh, people who used agricultural chemicals or it would would make sense that they would. Um, We're very surprised that they're not um, interested in buying our product. Why is that? and so, so it gets much more complicated at the at the regional level. At least, that's what I argue.
1: Right, and you talk about these fables through advertising. Uh, what are these chemical companies doing uh, to work with these local farmers to appeal to them?
0: Right, there are two main ways that they adapted their uh, fables. I call them ways of tell sort of the stories they're telling to convince um, a constituency to purchase. This product that they they presumed would be would need no convincing, um, and and so again uh, this is also like a revelation in, in terms of the historical historiography the historiography of this because essentially it it comes down to it's easy to say that uh, if some you know sort of the the chemical company line uh, repeated again and again about. Um, you know, if some worse, the more must be better. It makes sense that you would use as much as possible, as often as possible. Um, it has, the historiographical sort of analysis of that has long been, oh well, yeah, people who use it would totally endorse that. But I found a whole a, a whole bunch of different examples that challenge this, uh, and and so anyway, the the way that chemical companies, especially companies like Dow and Dupont, the way they um, altered the stories they told uh, was a they tried to connect uh, to agriculture and sort of a farmer agrarianism and so they are they trying to link up that way and saying, these chemicals that we produce for you are, uh, you know, supporting your agrarian way of life, your rural communities. Um, that was A. B which just a really funny line. Uh, and part of the innovation of the work, I think, is that, you know, I explored all of these different conference proceedings for like the North Central Weed Control Conference, for example. And that um, there you had all these different constituents, scientists, farmers, ag pilots, chemical, ultimately chemical. representatives all sort of coming together and in these proceedings you really see the the second option uh, that chemical companies are trying to employ and that is we got to tell this story by getting what they call dust on our boots so we actually have to go out there and talk with these people right (laughs) so um, so that this is a way of sort of shifting this message but they realize that a personal connection Um, and a sense of place would go long in convincing uh, Great Plains people to buy insecticides and and herbicides um, during this era.
1: Yeah, and I actually want to get back and ask you about the ag pilots themselves. Uh, Are these independent contractors? Are they working for the chemical industry? And if so, is their relationship to the chemical industry changing over time?
0: Yeah, I think um, that's a really important question because – uh, ag pilots, if they're if they're nothing else, they're highly individualistic. So there's a, this very uh, like the 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 micro of ag pilot uh, sort of indus, the industry itself, but the pilots themselves they are highly individualistic. In fact, I would say that um, this is this is where like sometimes it makes sense that they would challenge regulations because they believe. They're uh, self-regulating well enough. Um, at other times, they didn't. They they rejected chemical company representatives because they would argue they had a better sense of the toxicity uh, require. You know the toxicity relationships within the ground and the air, the conditions. These chemical representatives, they didn't know what they were talking about. I mean, that's that's how they would see what they were doing. And then finally, um, to the extent. They wanted to promote an image of themselves that was highly um, specific to expertise, sort of a practitioner expert, if you will. And so uh, to the extent that they're collaborating at all, they're collaborating uh, – within their groups so they would hold their own um, agricultural aviation society meetings and every state has a chapter um and so they would they would have their own conferences and attend other conferences but the main i, I would say the main group of people they worked with uh to the extent that they did would be uh agricultural extension agents because that makes sense because you have extension agents connecting to the local land grant and then they're also trying to do outreach out in the communities
1: yeah, and and one of the great things about this book is you connect that local, regional story to the national story, but you also talk about the global dimensions. You have a chapter called "Spraying Grasslands Abroad," and I want to talk about that. You know, where do these technologies, and expertise, and practices go? Uh, what's the and what's the outcome of that?
0: Well, so there are two two ways to answer. One is there's a uh, growth um, within grassland uh, regions around the world. And so other farmers who farm grasslands, like in New Zealand, for example, or in Canada, um, are looking to the U S great plains to see both what's, uh, what's effective and the debates, um, at the regional level, but also what's, uh, failing. And so what I try to do is explore how certain U S pilots are flying up to Canada and working with weed scientists and agricultural um aviation pilots in different provinces in Canada for example to kind of explore that uh international network and then also they would attend meetings and visit um New Zealand so I try to stay with the grassland regions um, but what we also see is by the 1960s, you have uh, an international agricultural aviation conference going on in different parts of the world air- annually. Uh, and so you have U.S. pilots, many of whom are from Great Plains states, um, attending these international Uh, meetings. And again, just like in a sort of a a smaller version of that in the region with the uh, weed control conference uh, and other conferences, you see some of the same debates. You see producers attending, you see, um, and asking questions about their specific countries and policies. And so you see how agricultural aviation, but also this larger story about um, agricultural chemicals, how that's spreading abroad. And it really comes down to, um, uh, I think, a general worry in different parts of the world about to what extent are chemicals shifting landscapes in their own respective countries, right? And the same sort of tensions that we see in the Great Plains and at the national story in the United States becomes uh, duplicated in different parts
1: of the world. Right, right. And you you end this discussion by bringing it more closer to the present, uh, with what you call the chemical digital age, which is the post 1970s grasslands. Um, what's changed in the last few decades, what kind of safeties or risks or economic concerns have arisen, uh, more recently?
0: Yeah, I think, um, the, the cultural response continues to be, um, in ag aviation communities and sort of the general, um, application of pesticides. And that is, um, you know, we're standardizing, we're becoming more and more precise, so precision uh, language is part of this discussion. The policies um, encourage precision and standardization as well, and, and so you, you see that, I think, in the digital chemical uh, or chemical digital age, you see that, uh, that thread continuing on. Um, you see how much d- uh, digital technology is taking over human-based operations. And so very much it, sort of coming back around to how how influential wartime technology is in terms of shaping domestic application after war, uh, you also see uh, drone technology really becoming uh, a, a strong presence in agricultural aviation, the agricultural aviation industry. Um, and so again, you, you have these sort of military, non domestic linkages. Um, and so I, 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 I think that's continuing to evolve. Um, and then finally, I would say that the politics, um, around safety and risk, um, are ever more, uh, polarizing but also, you have a lot of middle ground still. So maybe it's it's similar in the sense that you know farmers um, are around Nebraska in the Great Plains, uh, they are. Uh, th- looking at uh, reducing chemical applications for other options, but still wanting to be beholden to the production landscape that they're a part of. And so I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the tensions around that and how the polarizing politics sort of overlay, that's still pretty alive and well in the in this chemical digital age. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, one of the things I always like to ask uh, when people finish a big project like this is, is what surprised you the most um, when you were working on it um, or what you got out of it?
0: I think what surprised me the most was just how complex this story is at the at the field level or at the regional level um, I was probably like uh, I sort of entered in probably like a lot of people do you know you've read these books on pesticides and the debates um, and didn't quite realize or didn't sort of understand just how complicated and unexpected the relationships are, um, at, at a more localized level. And, and that's definitely what surprised me. I think also, you know, that, that brings into something else, which is, um, as all these trends continue on into the chemical digital age that I call it, uh, we also uh, are seeing a trend of more toxic alternatives. Um, and that's going to become a, a problematic issue too. So you have sort of farmers right now who are saying you know, we get that. It can be problematic to use agricultural chemicals in the same way we have been using them. And maybe we need to back off because these more toxic alternatives can create more of a disaster and not less. So the, the risk reward for them um, is the risk is greater. And so that may explain some of the changes as well. But all that to say, kind of gets back to what is a, an important revelation that surprised me, which is just how complex all of this is at the, at the ground level.
1: Yeah. You know, David, we've uh, taken up a lot of your time today, um, but I want to ask you before we go, uh, what are you working on next?
0: Well, I really appreciate being here and being able to uh, talk uh, to you about uh, Chemical Lands. My next project, so I have a, I have a second book coming out um, <laughs> at the end of September. It's co-authored Excellent. with my, uh, with a colleague of mine, Deborah Reed, um, out of the Henry Ford Museum. It's called "Interpreting the Environment." It's a public, a sort of an environmental history, public history book to help people in historic, uh, you know, running historic sites and museums um, to integrate environmental history into what they do, but. My my next, cool. my, next book, my next book project after that, um, yes, I know, um, is I, I want to keep broadening on some of these themes. And so I'm looking at the history of environmental risk, agricultural science, and the origins of food security um, in the Great Plains.
1: That's excellent. Sounds like a great project. Um, David, it's been really great to talk to you, uh, and we hope to have you back again soon.
0: All right. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Take care.